more evident, even obvious, that uh, the Pharisees hate Jesus. They're jealous of him, their anger seethes against him for upstaging them time and time again, and they frankly want him dead. But there's no denying his miracles and the authority with which he speaks. Even his enemies acknowledge that. Even today, they still do. So I don't think we need to look sideways at the um, Pharisees when they ask him in the passage today about when the kingdom will come. I think it is entirely possible that uh, recognizing his prophetic powers and abilities, they genuinely ask Jesus about an issue that plays a large part in their daily thinking, the coming kingdom. Especially now with Rome, I mean in their day, with Rome bearing hard on their necks during the days of the Roman occupation of Palestine, they want to know what signs for which they should look, to know that uh, the kingdom of God is about to break out and throw off these Roman occupiers. The disciples as we will see, have the same sort of questions in mind, even if from the perspective of faith. Uh, To their chagrin, Jesus is going to inform them that their very question itself is wrong-headed. And we're going to find out this morning that many of the questions now being asked by modern-day Christians, by uh, both faithful and apostate People today about the arrival of the kingdom of God are just as wrong-headed today as they were then. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit. And so humbly we plead with you to, to send him. Already he is here in our midst. And now we pray that he will open our eyes to receive wonderful things from your law. We, too, want to know about your kingdom, Father. We love your kingdom. We are part of that kingdom. And you are our king. So teach us now, we pray, your servants, your subjects, your royal subjects. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 17, we begin at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come... He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, 
Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In a way, I cringe when I come to passages like this, Uh, like this one in the Gospels. I cringe because I know, even as I get to them, that there are different parties in the Christian church who go to just these sort of passages to make their arguments for one eschatological view or another. Eschatology is the study of future things, of the nature and timing of Christ's return, especially, and the shape in which Jesus will find the earth when he returns. Eschatology, or thoughts about how God's kingdom is unfolding, has unfolded and will, in the future, unfold, has made something of a resurgence in our day, that is, in the period of time in which we're living, thanks in no small part to Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series of books that have been popularized also by a series of movies based on the books. Before that, the Schofield Bible with its eschatological notes brought eschatology, especially one brand of eschatology, namely dispensationalist premillennial eschatology, into the spotlight. And in our own corner of the Christian church, a recent surge of new post-millennialists have forced us, and I'm thankful for it, to rethink our traditional understanding of many of the Bible's passages. And then there's that smaller circle within our corner in which I was raised, uh, the Dutch amillennial school of thought. I was delighted to find upon arriving at Covenant Seminary a couple of decades ago that uh, the majority report there, at least for the time I was there, was uh, amillennial. At least that was my perception. It certainly was the instruction of the eschatology teacher, though I've since learned that historic premillennialism was before that the view of practically the entire faculty. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, while others of you are scratching your heads right now and hoping dearly that this sermon is going to take a turn for the better and really soon. But uh, I do want to ask you to just hang on for a couple more minutes. Amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism are basically three major schools of thought concerning eschatology, of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan and of its major events, mostly with a view to the future. 
but also as a way of understanding God's great acts in the past. Which sent me pulling my hair out this uh, last week in the study is the fact that all three schools of thought have their own distinct interpretations of this passage. And each of them has their strengths and all of them, when they're honest, have to acknowledge they have their weaknesses. So how to preach it? And then what sent me from frustration to laughter was the realization that none of those three, in my opinion, is able fully to lay hold of this passage and call it all their own. The post-millennialists can't claim this passage for themselves because it contains word-for-word quotations of another passage, namely Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, which modern post-millennialists think to divide neatly. They're all different post-millennialists and amillennialists and post-millennialists, pre-millennialists too, but, but the school in general thinks to divide Matthew 24 into two parts. One part speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the other part referring to the consummation of all things at the end of the world. Luke 17 is the wrench that sort of gets thrown into those works, uh, that otherwise neat scheme, because here Jesus uses thoughts from both parts of that passage to refer to a single event and intermingles them in a single thought. Dispensational premillennialists, on the other hand, read our passage today as proof positive that there will be a secret rapture of only believers Sometime in the future, before a period of tribulation begins for those left behind. Sound familiar? Hence the name of the books and of the movie. However, a close reading of the passage seems to indicate that the ones who are left are actually the righteous ones, not the unrighteous The ones who are swept away in Jesus' distinctions here are not the believers but the unbelievers in Moses' day and in Lot's. That means that the left-behind movies have got it just backwards, and frankly, I think, upside down as well. I'm not convinced that Jesus is here speaking of a rapture at all, but simply to the fact that when Jesus' judgment falls... One person is separated forever from another without regard to how close they may have been before that judgment event. Now that may apply to A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, as one school of interpretation has it, or to the last day of judgment according to another interpretation. Finally, my own amillennial convictions from youth here are put to the test, and I think fail. Amillennials like to appeal to this passage as proof positive that when Jesus comes, he will find widespread and predominant evil and rebellion. They argue that the world will be largely filled with evil, as it was in Noah's day, or as Sodom was in Lot's. Jesus doesn't say here that the Son of Man's coming will find them evil, as in Noah's day, or in Lot's. 
Jesus doesn't say that the coming of man will find them evil so much as that he will find them busy, as in Noah's day or in Lot's, busy eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building. The point's not so much that the people will be evil as it is that they will be taken somewhat by surprise. All of that to say, if you've stuck with me through that, and I hope you have, that I don't feel compelled, therefore, to understand or preach this passage with any particular eschatological view or in faithfulness to any of these schools. And that's freed me, I think, to apply it to us in our day in much the same way that Jesus applied it in his own. And that's not very difficult to do since the situation today is very much like it was in Jesus. The Pharisees asked this question about the coming of the kingdom of God because they were looking for it. As I said uh, before the reading, especially with Rome now bearing heavily on them, uh, during the days of Roman occupation of Palestine, they want to know what signs for which they should look. What indications they'll see when the kingdom of God is about to break out and throw off Rome's yoke. So anxious were they to see that day, they were looking everywhere for signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. The problem was that everyone read the signs differently. And the real problem in Jesus' day was that they were so busy looking for signs... They missed what was right under their upturned noses. Jesus, the king, was standing right before them. But they're sticking their fingers in the wind. They're sniffing the ground for signs. Sound familiar? How many times haven't we been treated to and haven't Christians been publicly embarrassed by modern-day sign-seekers and predictors of the coming of the kingdom. It was just a year ago, you remember, that the uh, predictions of May 21, 2011, of the end of the world, fell flat. When the day failed to produce the anticipated earthquakes and rapture, it was reinterpreted as a spiritual a day of judgment and asserted that the physical rapture would take place in connection with the destruction of the earth on October 21 of last year. But of course, we all woke up on October 22 and had either missed something or, or they had. Ads appeared nationwide on billboards and in newspapers. And nothing happened. All of this posturing, all of this sign-seeking, all of this reinterpreting has been going on literally for centuries. Before the 2001 prediction, or 11 prediction, there was the 1994 prediction. Before that, there have been scores and scores and scores of others saying, here is it, here it is, here's the kingdom. No, no, here it is, over here. There's another prediction I understand. I read about it just yesterday, that the world was supposed to end last month. All over the place. Jesus addresses these errors with a few very basic points here. First, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in our midst. 
The kingdom of God is in our midst. Of course, it was the Pharisees of his own day uh, that, uh, that he said this to. And, and, of course, it was true. While they were busy looking everywhere for signs of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom was standing right in front of them. And with the king was his kingdom, the disciples who bowed the knee to Christ, the king. It may not have seemed a very impressive kingdom at the time, but there it was. The kingdom had come upon them, and they had failed to grasp it. It was right in their midst. Jesus was right there. And from there, the disciples turned apostles. It would grow and turn the world Upside down. Still today, the kingdom is in our midst. The king died, rose again, and ascended to the throne in heaven. That king is as true a king today as ever he was to his promise. Lo, I am with you always. The king is with you, and he is with me. The king is in our midst. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now, even if not fully so, even if not as visibly as it will be one day. The kingdom is in our midst because the king is in our midst. And that kingdom, in case you haven't noticed, is growing and spreading as it was in the Pharisees' day, And that in very much the same way, through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, where people hear the good news of Jesus and bow the knee to King Jesus, there is the kingdom. Where is the kingdom today? Well, look around you. When Jesus died, how many were there who bowed the knee to him? Maybe a handful of people. A few dozen, maybe, who embraced him as king, prophet, and priest. Today, something like one in three people on this planet claim him as Lord. The kingdom is in our midst, brothers and sisters, and it's in the midst of the entire world. It is in Africa, where the number of Christians has grown from some 8 million a hundred years ago to 400 million today. It's in China, where Western evangelical missionaries had to leave that place in the wake of the rise of communism in the 1930s and 40s, wondering, would the Chinese church survive, or would Christians simply disappear from that place? Now, some 50 years later, we're astounded by the way that Christianity... Well, 60 or 70, I guess, that Christianity has exploded in that land. Nobody knows the exact numbers, but tens of millions of Christians live there in China and worship in underground churches. Now, we might weep, and rightly so, that Christianity in America seems to be on the wane at the moment. But that doesn't change the fact that here and all over the world today, the kingdom of God is already in our midst. Not least because the king himself is in our midst by his 
spirit. This is the first way that the Pharisees were wrong. They failed to understand that the kingdom of God exists wherever God is recognized and honored as king. Second, Jesus says that when the kingdom of God is made manifest, you will know it. There will be no mistaking it. There will be no need for decoding the coming of the kingdom of God. Nobody will need to readjust his predictions to say that, well, I guess the kingdom of God must have come secretly or or spiritually uh, and will come later physically or any sort of nonsense like that. There will be no need to follow someone who says, there's the kingdom, there it is over there. And others replying, no, it is, it's over here. Nor should you follow such people. Beware of them. Do not follow them. They're all over the place. Dear flock, don't get enamored with a person who claims to be able to tell you when the day of the Lord will come. Especially if it requires all manner of decoding signs and interpreting events, as if the coming of the Lord's going to be some great big secret. When one of the days of the Son of Man happens, everyone knows it. It doesn't come on cat's paws, it comes with lightning. It comes in such a way that it is unmistakable. Verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights of the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And that's the case whether you're describing the events of A.D. 70, a sort of mini consummation, the end of the age for the Jews when Rome fell on Jerusalem, as Jesus said it would, and left not one stone on another. Or when Jesus will come again at the consummation of all things, you will know it. You won't need anybody to tell you, there it is, or here it is. You'll need no one to speculate for you about its coming. Everyone will know it. It will be perfectly, obviously, perspicuously clear. Even the disciples in Jesus' day had trouble with with that being... Uh, to some degree, a product of their own religious day, just as we are, uh, to one degree or another, of our own. After Jesus gets finished explaining all of this to them, uh, finished showing the Pharisees their errors concerning the question of when, the disciples turn around and reply with another question of their own in verse 37, where? <laughs> oh, oh. Can't you just imagine how frustrated Jesus must have been? What is, how his countenance must have fallen at that time? Could you hear the sigh in his voice as he answers? Where the corpse is, the vultures will be there. <laughs> uh, it will be clear, just like I finished telling the Pharisees, now I'll tell you, it will be clear. As clear as the presence of a corpse is indicated by the gathering of vultures, so the Son of Man's day will be clear too. I know that some post-millennials like to point out that this passage could also be translated eagles uh, gathering where the corpses, the eagles will gather, which they then interpret as the eagles of 
Roman uniform that uh, gathered over Jerusalem in A.D. 70? Maybe, maybe. Either way, the visitation of the judgments of God are clearly to be seen, whether in the first century or in the day that will end all of the centuries. It will be clear as lightning that lights up the sky from one end to the other. The coming of judgment will be clearly seen by everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. Which brings me to the third point, you must be ready always for his coming. No one knows the day or the hour when he will come except for God. It will come at an unexpected time. People will be eating and drinking just like they were in Noah's day. They'll be buying and selling and planting and working. They'll be going to the store and they'll be running errands and they'll be at Walmart and they'll be at the theater and they'll be at the gas station. And then all of a sudden he will come and it will be judgment day for the living and the dead. You can't tell when he's going to come, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't make ready for that day. Oh, you mean I I should store up some extra food and water and fill the pantry? Is that it? Well, not exactly. Nothing wrong with keeping a supply of food and water for emergency purposes, of course. In fact, I'd recommend it. But for the coming of Christ... Physical preparations are going to do you absolutely no good. You must prepare spiritually. There's coming a day when of a sudden judgment will be upon us and all mankind. Those who will be living that day will either be living for the world or they'll be living for that day. Those who will be living for the world will still have their eyes set on this world, even as judgment falls. So this warning to them, verse 31, On that day let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Uh, I'm sorry, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And you do, don't you? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. If the day of Jesus' coming finds you still clinging to the things of earth, if your instinct is to run into the house and grab your stuff, the things, the possessions you've accumulated, you will find yourself in a very bad way. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. She loved her stuff. She loved her life at the old place, her earthly existence. She'd grown too attached to what she had. So she looked back. And today, somewhere in the east is a spot where she was turned into a pillar of salt in the deal. Seeking to preserve your life as you love it here And now is the surest way to lose it. It's the one who does not love the things of earth too much. Whose satisfaction, whose hope does not consist 
in the treasures of earth who will not only keep his life, but enjoy eternal life. So I have to ask you this question this morning. Where is your love? What is your first love? Maybe we'll put it that way. Are you finding your deepest satisfaction, your existence, your pleasure, your hope in the things of earth? Or does your hope lie elsewhere? That is, in the Lord, in his salvation. Now is the time to determine which it is right now. And then, if needs be, change that love to transfer your love, your hope, your confidence, your satisfaction from the things of earth to Christ. The judgment day will be too late. I think that's the point of verse 34. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. I know these verses have made for some pretty dramatic Hollywood pictures that would be truly comical. Drivers disappearing from semi-trucks on the expressway and pilots from cockpits on airplanes and airplanes falling to the ground and people disappearing, leaving their clothes behind. I'd say it'd be very comical if it weren't for the fact that so many American Christians, and it is truly an American thing, so many American Christians today have become convinced that that's the shape of the future. Hey, we've seen it in the movies, right? It's got to be that way. The point of the passage is quite simply and sanely this. On the judgment day, people, even quite close to one another in life, good friends, even marriage partners, will find themselves suddenly separated by the great divide that will finally separate unbelievers from believers, the sheep from the goats. The day of the Lord will overtake them in a heartbeat, and then it will be too late. Which is why I insist, though the time is flying, I know, and asking you one more time, in whom do you trust? Or in what? Where is your confidence? Not only now, but for the rest of eternity. Is it in your stuff? Remember when a reporter asked the executor of Rockefeller's estate that question, how much did Rockefeller leave behind? And the executor answered, all of it. He left it all behind. If there's anything that will truly be left behind, it will be the treasures you clung to on earth. And all that in which you were tempted to place your faith and your trust. The judgment is coming, that's the point. The kingdom that is already now and here is growing right in our midst and it's heading for consummation and a completion that's not known by any of us. Don't run in those circles, Christians, who follow the obsessed with the end times, the, the sign-seeking and the end times predicting and all of that. Don't run around saying, here it is, there it is. 
all this nonsense going on. The, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, and the kingdom is coming. Here's the point. Make absolutely certain that you are in that kingdom now and forever. The only way you can by trusting in that king. Amen.